0: I'm Aryeh Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Koren Podcast. Every week on the Koren Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to
1: The Current Podcast. We are honoured and delighted to be joined this week by Dr. Erica Brown. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's my delight to be here with you.
1: Um, so to jump straight in, uh, at the time of recording, we're only a couple of days away from Rosh Hashanah uh, and uh, moving steadily towards Yom Kippur as well. Um, given the various challenges uh, facing the world in 2020, you know, certainly over the last six or seven months, uh, what are you reflecting on as we approach Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur this year?
2: Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a, a an important question. Uh, I think it's, I think we're all feeling much more vulnerable this year. So in some way, I think some of the reflections and the chastisements that come along with the season are hitting us much more powerfully. For me, I'm reflecting on this from two angles. One is a very, very deeply personal angle of what is my responsibility to a world, especially when that world is in crisis on many, many fronts, medically, uh, ecologically, from a point of view of social justice, racial justice. um, What is my responsibility in this? And how do I sometimes put aside my personal blessings to really participate in the world as I think we are demanded to do? Um, and I'm thinking about this also from a leadership perspective, as I as I often do. What is the responsibility of leaders? In particular, I'm reflecting on the Musaf service of Yom Kippur and the fact that the Kohain Gadol says, you know, Ana Ani you know, you, the leader can't separate himself. Uh, from the responsibilities and the, and, the, and the bindings of the community and what responsibility our leaders have today, uh, particularly political leaders, in terms of how they manage us in crisis.
0: Um, I mean, as you, you mentioned, this idea of, of a world in crisis, um... You know, beyond the pandemic, we're witnessing significant world events continuing around us, the recent peace agreements, upcoming election in the USA, as well as political unrest around the world, including in Israel, and wildfires in California. How can our practices and tephilot at this time of year help us to make sense of everything we're seeing?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that because I think I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to make sense of five seven eight oh as I sort of wish it good riddance on so many levels, um, and I know this will be a little bit odd, but I found great comfort from a uh, a citation that I want to share with you. It's from a book called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People by a, a Lutheran minister, and uh, she runs a church called House for All Sinners and Saints, which you, you just have to love that title, and I I'm wondering if you could have a shul for all sinners and saints and she tells her new members that um, she welcomes them. And then she says, I want you to know at some point I'm going to let you down. I'll say something or do something stupid and disappoint you. And she says of her new members, I encourage them to decide before that happens if they'll stick around after it happens. If they leave, I tell them they'll miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills in the cracks left behind by our brokenness. And that's too beautiful to miss. And I've been thinking a lot about that example. And she brings a specific example where she agreed to officiate at a wedding of two of her congregants who booked her 18 months in advance. And she double booked herself uh, to teach in Australia. And she, she just couldn't get out of that commitment. She was very frustrated. And the congregant, the bride, texted her and said, this is that time, isn't it? And she said, huh? said, this is that time when you do something stupid and disappoint us. And she woke up the next morning to an email that said um, something to the effect of, we absolve you from doing our wedding and we forgive you. And then this pastor just dissipated into a puddle of tears, understanding the power of grace, that sometimes we get something that we don't deserve out of someone else's generosity and love. And I say that because I've been thinking a lot about the disappointments of the past year on so many different levels, um, and in and the, and the overlays, I think all of us understand whatever goes on in our families, in our communities, in our workplace, and then of course in the world at large, that the world is a place that disappoints, and sometimes it disappoints, disappoints quite profoundly. But the question is, are you gonna stick around after the disappointment? And to me, this message is perhaps best communicated in Shira Shirim, which is not a safer that we tend to associate with this period of time, Although I think, I think love and shuva are so interwoven. And so when you think about Parakay, the fifth chapter of Shira Shirim, and you have that scene where the lover appears and the, and the door is locked and the lover misses the appearance of her lover, there's this message there of disappointment. And you say, well, if this is a book about love and happy endings, you know, why include a story of disappointment when we miss each other? Well, I think it's to say that's the nature of relationships. The relationships we have with ourselves, the relationships we have with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the relationships we have with others, there's disappointment, there's loss, there's, there's, there's times when the timing is simply not right. And the question is, before you get involved, will you stick around after the disappointment? I think that's the challenge for this year, is for people who are struggling with their relationship with God um, and struggling with the relationship with the world. Do you love the world enough? To stick around after the disappointment,
1: and so you, I mean you've touched upon sort of a, a another approach or another look at how we understand uh, the idea of teshuvah being you know part of grace or this you know this staying power um, out of out of love or out of commitment, um, and there are you know numerous approaches uh, throughout the ages to understand the concept of, of teshuvah, whether it's the Rambam or of Cook, um, but also yourself. Um, you've referred to the Shiver in the Past as, uh, as okay, um, a healing. Um, does that, I, don't know, I assume it does, but how, how does that have any extra uh, resonance this year in particular?
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. So when I wrote my book Return um, for Magid and I, I want to take this opportunity to give a special shout out to my friends at Koren for the magnificent work that they do year in and year out to really generate Jewish thought and, and, and new ideas. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really been a pleasure to work and partner with Koren. So when I wrote Return, one of the translations that I favored for Chuba was recovery. And this notion of, you know, sometimes you say, well, we're returning to ourselves, but I'm not always sure what that means, because I'm not always sure the self, especially the evolving self, if there's some stability in that self, the that self that's very malleable and fluid on many levels, what am I returning to? And I think that there's some process of recovery that Chuva captures, and I think Rough Cook and Orda Chuva perhaps describes it best. The sense that that you may do tshuva over a very specific sin, uh, something, an Avera, some transgression that you could point to, that you can name. But most of us, honestly, can only remember the things we did wrong for, let's say, the past 24 hours or so. Now, it's hard when you get to Yom Kippur to say, I'm going to remember everything from last Tishrei. Um, I think that what Rav Cook understands in his two levels of chuva, that there may be a general malaise. It's not necessarily always specific. There may be a general sense of distance from oneself that one has to recover. And I think that distance has been magnified this year because of sh- social distancing. Very often we understand ourselves through a variety of relationships we have with others well, what happens when you spend so much time alone, so much time with perhaps your nuclear family, and uh, you know it doesn't always bring out the best in us, but it also lacks some of the stimulation or what I'd like to think of as serendipity. It's all of those chance meetings—sure, we get our work done. Um, you know, we're 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 doing what we have to do, but the serendipity of life isn't there, and I think sometimes that. That that's provoked um, a different level of transgression this year, a different level of, of feeling the malaise that we have to recover from. I think for many of us, and I, I certainly include myself, you know, there's an uncertainty, if you like, a fake fake, an uncertainty on top of an uncertainty, uncertainty about the climate outside of, of us that magnifies in many ways and amplifies the turmoil within.
0: Um, and obviously, I mean, you mentioned social distancing and sort of the isolation that many people have felt this year um and looking to yom kippur it's going to be very different for so many people who are used to being in a packed shul um over yom kippur whether now they're going to find themselves in a much more empty shul or maybe even at home how can those that find themselves especially at home you know this year make yom kippur more meaningful
2: well look the chance to to be isolated with the self the hitbo de that has been in, that has been uh Ours to embrace right now, uh, you know. I think will will certainly encourage people to be reflective and introspective in a way that they haven't. I just published an article for First Things about what I'd called spiritual social distancing, which is that we have a concept of dalit amot, of four cubits of space that is your private space and um which amounts to approximately six feet of actual space so uh, i'm not saying that chazal could have predicted our social distancing but i think that they had a sense that people need especially in active communities that when you daven, that when you're near a bed smell when you're in the presence of a particularly holy or special person wise person That there is a space that you enter, which is their unique space, and I I think that now that we have some of that space, I who have gone back to shul and social distanced in you know in these odd outdoor minyanim, and saying well now I have my the six. Feet of permitted space that is my prayer space, and frankly, I don't want it. You know, I want to be returned to the people who love me, um, and and the people I love, and the people I commune with, and the people I pray with, who are, by the way, are not always people you like. And I think that's the beauty of community: is that you know, no matter what your political beliefs, no matter your personality, no matter your age, no matter your income. That when we have a kila, that transcends all of those um, limiting labels. I will say that I, I take comfort from a, a Gemara, the uh, Gemara in Bracho, and and that says, mm-hmm. that, that God also only has Dalit Amot. And I think that the trick of this Yom Kippur is to line our four cubits with God's four cubits and see what we come up with in a very unique spiritual space and in some way we we I hope we never get this space again, but I'm also grateful to have it.
1: I mean just uh <laughs> not wishing to sort of focus on on isolation uh too much, but uh one of the recurring themes in Sae that you uh pick out upon uh in your book Jonah, um, is isolation. Uh whether it's you're not feeling isolated, um or it's you know uh, it just it, it comes up throughout the throughout the book uh and as we 've been discussing and as everyone i think is acutely aware <laughs> isolation has has taken on uh a whole new meaning uh for for all of us this year um i mean c- can you speak at all to sort of i uh, you, you touched upon it already but how we can take that feeling of isolation whether it 's a physical isolation or a spiritual isolation and turn that into a positive or even something to as a driving force behind uh, behind Teshuvah,
2: yeah. Thank you for that question. You know, there's a chapter in my book on um, Yona, which um, is one of my favorites. It's on the three days that Yonah sits in the the dag, mm. the whatever the fish it was. Um, he sits in this fish for three days, and of course, I do a riff on all the or many many of the appearances of the of the three day period that appear throughout Tanakh, and um, you know, it's it's certainly a motif that Chazal were aware of what is that three-day that, that, that three period? And I wanna take that and compare it to another time period we have in Tanakh, which is 40 days. I think three days is long enough to think about the transformation of self. Is how do I change my circumstance? And if you look, these three-day periods in Tanakh almost always precede an act of radical transformation. We'll read one of them on Rosh Hashanah, which is Avram's three-day journey to Hara Moriah in the Binding of Isaac. We'll read one on Yom Kippur with Yonah. We read, uh, you know, uh, we we recall one on Purim with Esther and the three days before she goes to the king. And then, of course, on Shavuot, the three days that we prepare for Matan Torah. These are days of introspection and preparation right before something absolutely transformative is going to happen. But as we all know, we can make we can make decisions as as individuals that don't, actualize themselves in behavior because we don't stay in that place long enough we have a you know a psychological research today that suggests if you want to change a habit you need to do something different for 30 days and so i want to take the three days of decision making and then the 40-day period that you have let's say in the teva or or um moshe on har sinai and say if you really want to change take that initial thought that you've been, that, that, that thought in isolation that you've experienced for three days, and then take it to make it 40 days long. I'm really, really intrigued by uh, adults who make significant life changes. Someone who decides to leave a job, to move to another country, to change religions, um, to get out of a failed relationship, to bring children into the world. What is the point where you say, today is the day I'm making the change? And I, I hope you'll excuse me if this sounds a little harsh, but I think a lot of people in the Orthodox community don't make lots of radical changes. You know, I think part of it is, is following in the footsteps of one's parents, of continuing the tradition for one's children. And I can say this as someone who came to Judaism as uh, did not grow up as an Orthodox or practicing Jew. Um, I grew up as a, an identifying Jew. But very early on in my teenage years, I made this journey. And talk about isolation. You know, what it's like to keep Shabbat when your family doesn't keep Shabbat. What it's like to sit in your room and practice davening. For those who grew up with it, you don't know how hard it is to learn how to daven. It's not only the choreography, which you can show off in shul when you watch people really carefully, it's saying, how am I going to put all these Hebrew letters, which really look like hieroglyphics to me, how am I going to put them together? What kind of decisions am I going to make that make me a different person? And, and so I you know, to relate to that experience and say, sometimes it takes the world to really shake up radically for us to ask ourselves, well, what am I waiting for? That thing that I really want to be, that change that I really want to make in myself or in the world. If you're not going to do it now when the world is in a state of bedlam, well, when are you going to do it? If you just kind of keep charting and walking over the same paths that you've always walked over. And I think that is a real challenge for for people who are observant, is to say, what does it mean to really embrace change?
0: Talking about uh, lengths of time to make changes. So, the book, your book, Return, shows how the Aseret Yom Teshuvah, the ten days of repentance, um, is a, a, a daily ascent towards Yom Kippur. What is it about these ten days that lends itself to being part of this process of Teshuvah, as opposed to just a period of ten? Random days that happen to be, you know, the sort of the holomoid between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur.
2: Yeah, I've never thought of them as a holomoid. That's interesting. You know what? They'd probably be more fun. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I I think of it as the 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 long trip inward, and I think that there's a sensitivity to understanding it doesn't take one day. Just like you have in halakha a period of you know, three times to approach someone to ask for forgiveness before it's the the transgression is on them. I think because there's an understanding these things, these are emotional tribulations, and they take time to unfold, and they take time to process. And I might be in a particular place, but you might not be there yet. And we're going to have to negotiate what that looks like. I think for a lot of people who are very, very hard on themselves, making this journey um, to through Yom Kippur, the you know, the, the kind of self-damage that they inflict is is uh, profound indeed. In fact, I was speaking to someone who said to me, who's uh, in a progressive synagogue, said, you know, in our shul, we know that people beat their hearts so much the rest of the year that on Yom Kippur, when we say our al-chetz, we kind of massage the heart, which I thought was this very, like, tender little gesture, and I understood what she was talking about. Because I think when you get in that 10 day period, it's very, very intense. Um, and you know, my suggestion for people on a practical level is, before we enter this 10 day period, which means you know, get your skates on, because it's now, um, is to write down on 10 small changes they'd like to make and to really think about them each of these days, dedicate one day to really analyzing and working through what that change looks like how it would change their lives were they to do that and what would success look like? Um, what would failure look like? And what are they going to do when they fail and put those things in place so that it's not a, um, it's not a sink or swim. It's not, it's not a, I can either do this or I, I won't do it. Sinner or saint. I think the process matters.
1: So on this idea of the, I'm oh, sorry, Shiva being a transformative period um something that sort of plays on my mind every year is this question of how are we supposed to feel after yom kippur at the end of Na'ila, how are we supposed to be feeling you know i i'm always in two minds am i supposed to be feeling exhausted and beaten down from a whole day or 10 days or you know a month and a half from at the beginning of edel of you know hard uh self-reflection and teshuva or should i be feeling a, a sense of elation and excitement that i've made it to the end of yom kippur and hopefully i've I've achieved um you know a state of teshuva or kapara or you know a state of forgiveness um i'd be interested to hear your thoughts you know if we look at the, the story of as uh, a series of or a period to make a series of small changes uh that will hopefully lead to to bigger change um a greater change uh you know What's your view, uh, how we should be feeling uh, as we close out Ni'ilah uh, and begin the new year?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a great question what we should feel like at the end of Yom Kippur. I think we have an indication from one of my favorite tunes, Mare Kohen. And that happens, you know, most of time, the, the the sense of the elation of the face of the leader that really indicates that manages the meaning for the kila, and the kila understands that something cathartic and something very deep has taken place that they will also benefit from. That makes them feel this state of el- elation. Um, you know, again, in, in many religious traditions, it might be called grace. Um, this freedom from hate. Um, you know, we use the term "nose avon" so many times on Yom Kippur and in our slichot leading up to Yom Kippur. And the idea of "nose avon" is to is to carry the weight of sin. Um, and I think there's some sense in which Yom Kippur allows us to put that down. Um, certainly, I can just say, for me, Yom Kippur is my favorite uh, holiday of the year. I know that i have stiff competition from others who love sukkot and they love pesach and they love you know holidays where family gatherings for me the cleansing is so critically important and i must say that when um when we have that last show blast on yom kippur i feel such exhilaration that i'm alive you know i have a little sign in my kitchen that says kamti baboker Shao bonus and i i do feel that I got the extra day, that I'm alive, that despite the wrongdoings, that there's another chance. And I think we live on that chance, that chance for renewal. That's what gives us strength, and that's what gives us hope, particularly in dark times like this. We need that feeling, that there's some possibility, there's some self that I can become that I haven't yet actualized. Otherwise, what's the point?
0: I think there's definitely something special about that period, sort of like you mentioned, between the post mari Cohen like elation and sort of the remainder of Yom Kippur of the day, um, it definitely feels different to let's say the feeling the night before on Kol Nidre. Um, and obviously, in the middle of that period, we of that the afternoon we read Sefer Yonah. Um, what is it about Yonah? Maybe it's p- built into that. I guess the feeling that we you know of, of that the time when we actually read it, and also we, you know apart from the theme of isolation we mentioned before, but what is it about the story of Yonah that resonates in particular with you? And how do you think the book may have extra resonance this year?
2: Yeah, so a good question. And and I appreciate also coming off of Musaf, of Yom Kippur, where, as I said earlier, we're recounting the leader's experience of praying on behalf of, of davening on behalf of the Kila. And I think you have the exact opposite experience with the Yonah reading. Yonah is in isolation. Yonah acts as a lone operator. Yonah runs away from Akarash Baruch mission and his own mission, um, tries to go to Tarshish, which is so far away from God's destination of Nineveh. In other words, uh, if you look at different citations of Tarshish as they appear in Tanakh, it's a place of... Um, Fleets that uh, bring very expensive uh, items from place to place. It's almost like losing yourself in materialism. Is that's where Yona wants to go? And then Yona, Yona's flight, this sort of escape from responsibility, he undertakes, and God's forcing him to confront himself. That comes as you look in Peretz with the magnificence, Phila, that that Yonah utters as he tries to reconcile himself with his mission. But I think when he comes out of that fish, the message to him is, you need to take responsibility for the whole world. This isn't only about yourself. And I think for many people, they don't see that we read the al in the plural, that this isn't only about your personal chuba. it's about how you emerge from this day and say, if I'm going to act like God, I've got to have pity on everyone, on Ninveh and its animals. Um, Yonah could only muster up pity for his own tree that he had very little investment in. And I think actually reading the story tells you, especially because it ends on a question, um, I'm not sure that Yonah made it. I'm not sure that Yonah really ever reconciled himself and we'll never know. So the question really is ours to answer as we move ahead which is in this sort of whale, this, this sort of enclosure that Yom Kippur is for us, how are we going to emerge? Will we have an enduring understanding of ourselves and the, and the job we have to do in the world, outside the self, outside the narcissism of going in a boat and falling asleep while there's a storm? There is a storm, a brew, as I don't have to tell either of you. And the question is, How are you going to ride that storm? And who are you going to care about? And will you care enough? Will, in Ruff Cook's language, the song of humanity, will it be the song of self or Knesset Israel, Or can we muster up a song of humanity that is so powerful that it stops the next storm?
1: I think there's uh, there's something to be said there as well, as in Aryeh sort of saying how we go from sort of the jubilation of Mari Cohen um, to say for Yana, and then I think even into into Naila. Um but like as in we we have this sort of build up to Marikayin, and then we sort of have this story of Yana, which sort of really humanizes uh, the story of Teshuvah and, and as you're saying, this sort of up and down, this focus of like he he's narcissistic and he's trying to run away, but then there's this, this story of redemption there. But it ends; it's just got an open ending, um, and then we go back into. Sort of the pleading and the shiver. I think that there's there's something to be said there. And in uh, in at the end of every chapter of Return, one of the wonderful things about the book is that you set the reader uh, life homework. Um, you know, tasks that to help the reader sort of internalize the theme of the chapter and to sort of uh, focus uh, their shiver during the ten days of repentance. Um, you know, but you wrote the book a number of years ago. Uh, so, what life homework would you Set us uh, for this year for for Yom Kippur of five seven eight one, uh, and for the rest of the year.
2: I'm still doing the old life homework. You know, some people never get their homework <laughs> really done. Um, you know, I think I think this homework that you know that, that we all have and. I like to call it life work because I think, I think homework feels oppressive and I think life work says, you know, you know, sometimes you do homework and it's just rote work and you don't get anything out of it. But I think the, the life work you just do again and again. So in some way, maybe the process of Chuva, of recovery or return is we're returning to the same sort of questions and the same life work. And I think all of us are doing the same homework all the time, that the things that we want to work on ourselves. They keep resurfacing every year. We try to bat them down, but then they come back up. Um, you know whether that's uh, those are issues of ego or selfishness or you know or or cruelty or gossip or whatever it is that we just say ah, just I need to nail that this year. I need to do something a little bit better. But I think for this year the platform is just much much larger. I think the platform is really about what do you want to do to make the world better. Um, not only yourself better and it was the bettering of the self will come through the work of the world. So, you know, if that is in some kind of political realm, if that is about protest, if that is about, you know, securing rights for those who who, who don't have them speaking out for those who can't taking small ecological steps to make the environment better. Um, I, I think the Orthodox community is very, very narrow. And um Functions so beautifully as an internal organism in terms of the deep bonds of chesed. But sometimes we don't look outside that community. We become very parochial. We don't see, we blind ourselves. We know what's going on because we read the papers. And maybe that's worse. Maybe it would be better not to read the papers um, and then then just stay in the bubble. But if you're going to read about the world, if you're going to listen to the news about the world, what are you going to do about it? And that's certainly... Way that I'm thinking about this year, um, and then and then what are the concrete action steps? Because as we know, it's not how you fast; it's how you break the fast every year. Who are you? Who are you the next morning? Uh, how do you approach the world differently? And um, yes, yeah, so I, th- I think there's a lot of a lot of that world work to do, and it's it's ours to do.
0: On, on that note, uh, we just really want to say thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak to us, um, especially I think in the run up to Yom Kippur. I'm um, just thinking about what we've discussed. There's a lot of questions there in terms of how will we emerge from the whale, how will we emerge from Yom Kippur, how will we emerge from the pandemic? Um, we really appreciate you giving us the time to start thinking about those questions, start thinking about some answers to it, um, and definitely you know, helping us all to focus as we go into Yom Kippur. So thank you so much for your time.
2: Oh, my pleasure. and wishing both of you a Shana Tova and really a year of, of health, a year of good health ahead.
0: amen amen Amen. thank you so much
1: that's all the time we have for this week's episode of the korean podcast Ari, if people want to get in touch how can they do so
0: they can email us on podcast at koreanpub.com and you can find us on all social media at korean publishers and there is no better time to go to the koreanpub.com website as we have free shipping on all orders until sukkot with promo code shana tova that's right. And you
1: can also hear Dr. Brown on her own podcast, Take Your Soul to Work, available wherever podcasts are found. Wishing you all a k'tiva ve khatima tova.